This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good morning, and uh, great to see a, a, a pretty full room after uh, a very full lecture theater yesterday. Um, this is the, um, the seminar to discuss uh, Glenn Lurie's first lecture in uh, this year's Tanner series at Stanford. Glenn's first respondent will be Larry Bobo from the Sociology Department at Stanford. And uh, Larry will speak for about 20, 25 minutes. Uh, then pa Pam Carlin from the law school will speak um, for roughly the same amount of time. Then I shall invite uh, Glenn to respond briefly, and then we will open things for discussion. And I will try to determine in a fair-minded manner who gets to ask the question first, OK? Uh, thank you, Eamon, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to be taking part for the second time in a set of uh, Tanner lectures here um, at Stanford. And we certainly had. Um, a marvelous setup for today's discussion last night. Uh, I almost completed writing my remarks, and I'm just going to plunge right into them here. Um, about a decade ago, the serious scholarly investigation of the growing nexus of race, crime, and incarceration began in earnest. Perhaps the first very loud volley of concern on this front was fired by Michael Tonry in his cogent and important book, Malign Neglect, Race, Crime, and Punishment in America, published in 1995. In 1996, the former director of the Massachusetts juvenile detention system, Jerome Miller, published his very passionate work, Search and Destroy, African-American Males in the Criminal Justice System. Then in 1999, we saw the publication of three important books, Mark Maurer's Race to Incarcerate, David Cole's No Equal Justice, Race, Class, Race and Class in the American Criminal Justice System, and uh, Christian Parenti's Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis from a more radical or Marxian point of view. Many researchers, policy advocates, and scholars were thus starting to take note of a new phenomena, a phenomena that in my own work I've called, borrowing a bit from David Garland, racialized mass incarceration. We are now in the process of witnessing the emergence of a second generation of work coming from a variety of arguably more mainstream social scientists. As Professor Lowry's talk uh, indicated last night, Princeton sociologist Bruce Western's book, Punishment and Inequality in America, published in 2006, is perhaps the most rigorous, broadly relevant, and penetrating of these, this new generation of work. But it should arguably include several others, such as Marie Gottschalk's The Prison and the Gallows, The Politics of Mass Incarceration, Jeff Manns and Chris Ugin's Locked Out, Felon Disenfranchisement in American Democracy, and the soon-to-appear deadly symbiosis, race and the rise of neoliberal penality by Louis Quaquant, who I hope is able to join these proceedings at <laughs> some point, or my own in-progress, unfair by design, black and white Americans' views on the new law and order regime. I see Glenn Lowry's work as very well positioned within this new wave of significant scholarship. But before I turn to discussion of the things I found valuable in yesterday's lecture, or after doing so, raise some questions aimed at provoking, I hope, a broader discussion. Um, I want to engage in a sort of point of personal privilege. <laughs> I literally want to go back to one year ago, to the Tanner Lectures by distinguished historian David Brian Davis, whose topic at that time was exiles, exodus, and promised lands. 
Uh, his lectures involved a pointed reflection on the history of the American colonization society, the effort to create a colony somewhere else uh, for African Americans. Uh, and uh, he focused on that effort to create a separate and distinct homeland for ex-slaves and free blacks from the US. At that time, I offered three different takes on Davis's lecture, items one and two of which need not concern us here. But I am going to read you word for word the conclusion of my remarks, which I must say, no one in that audience at that time said a word about. Um, to wit, quote, my third and final lens is the more sociological one. And here I focus now more on the strategy of removal at the heart of the colonization movement and fear about preserving social order and moral fabric, the moral fabric of society that in many ways were at the ideological, indeed religious and evangelical roots of this colonization movement. I am led to wonder if we are not today in the midst of a terrible and twisted realization of one aspect of that dream of, quote, the removal of free blacks. That is, I want to think for a moment about the issues Professor Davis has raised in terms of what present day relevance and resonance they may have for us. And here I want to focus on a problem of growing recognition by sociologists and at the heart of my own current research, namely the mass imprisonment of African Americans that has taken place over the past two to three decades. I will not bother to review all of the statistics here, but we have arrived at a point where there are more African American men in prison than in college, when nearly half of all those in jail or in prison are African American, though blacks are only 12% of the US population, where one in three black men in their 20s is under some form of criminal justice supervision by the state, be it on parole, probation, or actual physical incarceration, and where the lifetime probability that a black male born today will be incarcerated will soon exceed one in three, versus less than one in 10 for non-Hispanic white men. There is no other way to view this than as a form of social removal. And as we extend felon disenfranchisement and as impose ever more draconian prison sentences and conditions of incarceration, it borders on the sort of social death Orlando Patterson once characterized as accompanying slavery. Is mass incarceration not today's form of expressing an intractable prejudice and fear of the black? Is it not the path we chose as a society that otherwise will not commit to educating the underclass, that will not commit to providing jobs for those whom distinguished sociologist William Julius Wilson calls the ghetto poor? Instead, we find jails for them. Are we not in the process of creating incredibly harsh new internal colonies with our vast prison industrial complex? And as an quantitative, empirical quantitative social scientist, I can tell you that measures of anti-black racial prejudice are durable and substantial predictors of the general public taste for punitive law and order policies. At the end, I take Professor Davis's lecture as an occasion to think not just about the complex story of the American Colonization Society, but about how this story bears on how we understand and engage the present. For me, the talk calls to mind the importance of, uh, of interrogating the understanding and effects of racial prejudice. It calls to mind the need to interrogate the modern relevance and forms of racial removal, and it calls to mind the necessity of having well-articulated freedom dreams 
embodied in the notion of a promised land free of oppression. Word for word. Point of personal privilege now complete. Um, let me return to Lowry's very stimulating lecture of last night. It is validating and reassuring to see Glenn focus on these issues and to bring, it, bring to it the sort of philosophical lens and passionate approach that he did, including the element, I think, of, of personal political transformation that this clearly uh, involves and expresses. Let me first point to three aspects of the lecture that I want to amplify, um, if I may. Uh, and I'm not doing this to challenge or correct, but really to applaud, um, uh, to say kudos, and for at least a moment to make again the center of our perceptual attention and reflection some critical attributes of um, his remarks last night. The first of these qualities uh, I will call the Du Boisian posture. And by that, I do not mean the sometimes elitist and harsh Victorian gaze of the great man. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I mean instead the animating importance of Du Bois's fundamental premises in social research and analysis on matters of race and the condition of African Americans. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I believe Lowry did was, and now I quote directly from the preface to Du Bois's magisterial black reconstruction in America, quote, tell this story as though Negroes were ordinary human beings, realizing that this attitude will from the first seriously curtail my audience. Uh, if one truly takes to heart this message, then I do believe uh, it is hard not to be deeply concerned. It is hard not to be deeply critical. It is hard, challenging indeed, not to be very passionate about the modern state of racialized mass incarceration. For it does indeed say something about society, about our culture, and about just how profoundly distorted by a legacy and a modern reality of stereotyping and racism that we have today. It says that we have, in a fashion, uh, as I try to refer to it elsewhere, normalized this state of racialized mass incarceration. It is by and large seen as not merely unproblematic, but as the natural right and proper condition if you break the law. Uh, we have the right to incapacitate and punish you, uh, even if that ends up falling with extraordinarily severe disproportionality on some clearly identifiable segment of the population. It concerns me, it should concern us all, as Lowry emphasized, that we have somehow done just that, normalized, and for the present, it seems, depoliticized what are, in fact, a profound and remarkable set of social conditions. So I want to, again, uh, laud that um, Du Boisian uh, posture and what it does to make us cast a very different eye on this underlying set of social conditions. The second of the qualities I want to applaud is Lowry's centering of slavery prominently in the narrative of his argument. This is, after all, America's original sin. But the reach and gravity of this transgression and its profound reverberations into the present are all too easily marginalized. They are frequently shunted out of view. Um, 
I commend Glenn for not letting that marginal, marginalization of the defining imprint of slavery continue. <laughs> uh, too often, the voices, the people who try to force such a recognition of the durable relevance of the slavery era to today's problems and conditions are not merely seen as polarizing and anachronistic, but as just flat out impolite, right? Uh, you're supposed to let that sleeping dog lie because haven't we somehow happily moved beyond all of that? Uh, and the short answer to that question is no, we have not. Uh, it still matters today. I believe that honesty and civic discourse of this sort should not be shunned or sanctioned, particularly when it is critical to bringing a full sense of perspective to a problem uh, and what it might require or mean in this day to achieve real justice in the light of the scale and enormity of the injustices of the past. And there are very few things that underscored this point for me more than um, actually last year at this time, having seen the Slavery in New York exhibit, uh, which is one of the most powerful demonstrations of how slavery came to define every warp and fiber of the American experience and really the establishment of global capitalism. That it wasn't some bad episode that we've now gotten beyond, it was a defining era in the construction of almost all the institutions and circumstances we now know. Um, so thank you. Um, the third quality I want to applaud, uh, there are in fact others which I, I will get to but probably in a more indirect fashion, uh, is actually the place where the Du Boisian posture on the one hand and the narrative prominence of slavery on the other meet, the place where they come together. And that, namely, uh, is Lowry's willingness to speak directly to the problem of the dehumanization of African Americans, so powerfully woven into our conventional cultural understandings and present-day social conditions, including the condition of racialized mass incarceration. When he speaks of dishonored persons, of racial dishonor, of a nation of racist jailers, he is issuing a powerful ethical and moral challenge to the nation. Um, and again, I want to applaud that and say that it is right and just to cast this as an act of dehumanization, as a complete failure to recognize and socially embrace and validate the full equal humanity of another group of our citizens. Having now raised this triumvirate of praise, I now want to get nasty. No, not, not at all. Um, <laughs> I want to turn to some points that I hope um, are a little bit more provocative and uh, help to generate some useful discussion this morning. My first point, um, in a more critical vein, is to say, well, what about the argument from conservatives? How would a number of Glenn's former confreres uh, see this problem? For example, in my class on race and crime in America, which I've been teaching now since 2002, I routinely lecture on chapter 10 of Stephen and Abigail Thernstrom's book, America in Black and White, One Nation Indivisible. There, they argue that we live in an era of unacceptably high violent crime, they argue that blacks are disproportionately involved in crime, so much so that like John Ulio before them, they are comfortable using the phrase black crime. 
they argue that black youth in particular are involved in deadly violence as both offenders and victims. They argue that there is no longer a serious problem of racial bias in the functioning of the criminal justice system. And they argue, whether it be the application of the death penalty or the pursuit of the war on drugs, they don't see racial bias as a problem here. Uh, and they claim that economic hardship is really not the source of our crime problems. So please stop searching for quote unquote sociological or structural roots um, to this phenomenon. They go on to make a particular point of emphasizing the reasonableness of white fears of black crime, stressing that blacks are responsible for a disproportionate share of crime in general, and in particular, they do the lion's share of inter or between race crime. Most crime is intra-racial, but if you look at the total pool of between race crime, more of it is committed by African Americans than whites. Um, indeed, in their analysis, the problem of black crime is the race problem. Um, as they write, quote, the link between blacks and crime, strong in reality, and even stronger in the popular mind, is the greatest single source of resistance to racial integration of our residential neighborhoods. Now, I, I review this argument not because uh, Lowry or anyone else need be held responsible for it, but in part to make the general point that there is an elaborate counter-narrative out there. Uh, and pardon me for having just said that, because in fact, it is a mistake to label it as a counter-narrative, <laughs> because it is in fact the dominant and prevailing narrative. Uh, so, more to the question I want to pose then. Uh, how do we really dislodge a narrative that so powerfully instantiates and resonates with the worst features of the American culture regarding the racial divide? Uh, or do we have reason now to believe that many conservatives have had the sort of change of heart and awakening that John DeLulio has had? Uh, my own strong sense is that we're not at that point, uh, but I can easily be corrected. Let me link this, this concern uh, with the conservative opposition and the dominant narrative directly to my second more pointed question to Lowry, uh, which does concern the matter of racial bias and discrimination. We can all accept logically a claim that the mere existence of disparity does not mean or does not equate systematic discrimination or other unfair bias. Uh, and there is a large body of evidence produced by uh, scholars and researchers, for example, like Alfred Blumstein and his colleagues, uh, that argues, in effect, that most, if not all, of black disproportionate incarceration can be traced directly to actual disproportionate involvement in crime. That is, some would claim there is little strong evidence that, after taking into account an individual's criminal history and the attributes of a crime committed, that race gives us any further purchase on how the criminal justice system treats offenders. Yet Lowry, unlike my own work I quickly put in and that of many others, frames an argument that is very much driven by a race-based analytic or a race-centered line of critique. Does one not have to make a case for or about racial bias in order to sustain in a persuasive fashion this sort of analysis? I mean, that's the question. Can you launch an analysis from race without having established 
that we're talking about some unfair discrimination operating? Is it either logically, or perhaps more importantly as a practical political matter, is it sufficient to say that we know patterns of prior discrimination and contemporary racial indifference make for the problem that we now observe and bemoan? Well, that sort of inference from the Du Boisian posture and what we know about history be sufficient to move people to embrace a logic that in most other circumstances uh, would have required a demonstration of systematic discrimination and racial bias. Uh, third, among my efforts to provoke discussion, um, is to challenge the occasionally, and I'm sorry if I'm overstating this, the occasionally dismissive posture Glenn adopts toward social scientific evidence. At several points you say that, quote, science is insufficient, or that science is not the answer. And I don't want to exaggerate how you mean that or how much you use it, but, but it does happen there. Um, and um, that this re these remarks are made in the sciences at least not the full answer. Given how heavily the talk focused on empirical research, it seems that at the most, I read you as communicating a sort of ambivalence about the role of social scientific evidence might play in the drive for a, a profound refashioning of our public discourse and policymaking on the matter of crime and crime response. But uh, perhaps we can get you to speak at greater length on this exact question. Someone recently, uh, someone suggested to me recently that uh, reviewing all of the numbers and facts as you did and as I've been doing in lectures for several years now does not persuade anyone. My first thought and a reaction I stay with even now um, is that my first mission is not in fact persuasion. <laughs> Uh, my first mission, a la Du Bois, in a work such as The Philadelphia Negro, is to actually get the facts as right as I can, uh, to truly establish the phenomena for people, as Robert Merton might have put it. Or is, was this person right? Is it the case that the resuscitation, uh, res, recitation <laughs> of these facts just shuts people down? Um, there's a slightly different twist on this matter of social scientific evidence and facts. Uh, there are many who feel that the current punitive ethos and policy zeitgeist prevails in part precisely because of the downsizing or marginalization of criminological experts. Uh, this is exactly the point that Frank Zimmering and his colleagues make in the book Punishment and Democracy, Three Strikes and You're Out in California, about the adoption and implementation of California's three strikes uh, legislation, the most extreme version of it in the nation and one recently ratified by the U.S. Supreme Court. It is an argument from passion about American character, so is it an argument from passion, from a deep concern with American character and a preoccupation with ethical reasoning, is that what we need, or is it one based in real expertise and careful knowledge-based policy reformulation that we need? Of course, the choice need not be such a dichotomy, uh, but I would be interested uh, in your thoughts, because from their point of view, the passion of polyclass's father and the general zeitgeist of giving greater voice to victims is part of what produced a terrible policy, a policy that has, in fact, had sharply racially differential effects, um, even though that was not evident on its face at the time uh, that it would have that impact. Uh, what is there to say in conclusion as I get to uh, moving toward um, the end of my remarks here? 
uh, I would pose the question, it seems only natural, where the heck do we go from here? Uh, I have been most impressed in this regard with the work of Henry Ruth and Kevin Wrights in their book, The Challenge of Crime, Rethinking Our Response. And it is the book I normally end my course on race and crime in America with. They believe that we have gone seriously astray in crime response policy and that we have done that largely in response to passion and not evidence and reason, not careful thinking about what actually serves the goals we would like to see crime response policy um, focus on. And this is the part of the talk that isn't quite written, but I gotta go to my PowerPoint overheads from lecture um, to do this. Uh, from their point of view, there are maybe seven things we really need to focus on doing. First, policy ought to prioritize the use of incarceration as a response to violence, particularly grave violence. So the sort of focus on sanctioning drug use or even some other property crimes probably needs to be de-emphasized uh, from their vantage point to start to sketch this vision. That secondly, we need to charter a sort of permanent sentencing commission, a kind of group of experts somewhat insulated from the vicissitudes of the electoral process and the occasional horrible crime like the killing of a poly class, who can really exercise control and judgment over these matters so that we don't get these inflexible mandatory minimum sentences for everybody in response to a single horrifying act <laughs> uh, that end up playing out in this differential way that plays upon large existing inequalities of race and class. Thirdly, that we need to reverse policies of more and longer sentences for drug offenders, that we just need to have a direct, honest, open, forward discussion that we went nuts on this and it was the wrong response. Um, fourthly, that we do in fact need to conduct a national audit of incarceration and that when we find these and document and make clear to the public these huge disparities by race and other forms of, of group inequality, um, that we have to have strong questioning of whether that outcome was really the goal of our social policy. Um, next, they want to promote effective program, helping programs for offenders. Good namby-pamby liberal stuff, whatever that is. Um, another namby-pamby thing which I'll skip. Um, and then lastly, and this I think is true, that any major reform uh, in the law enforcement strategy and apparatus always be preceded by an analysis and statement of the racial, ethnic, and financial changes that may result. That in effect, we don't make important changes unless we've done a human social impact statement of some kind. Uh, what do we reasonably foresee as the outcome of having implemented some policy change? Uh, which I, I wonder on your reactions as to that kind of strategy, uh, both as to whether this sort of strategy is sufficient, calling for that way of formulating policy, and if there are any real grounds for hope that uh, we can get society to move in that sort of direction. Uh, my, my own work here has focused on the public opinion slant on this, and in particular, our capacity to either frame the issues in ways that draw people's attention to different information or create a different cast of the crime and law and order problem, and can we get people to support a more preventative, more rehabilitative, less punitive, uh, response to crime. And I have to tell you, the long and the short answer is not very encouraging. Um, not at all with respect to the death penalty. <laughs> um, and I won't go through the details of it, but we can uh, in the discussion. But I think that fits the argument that violent crime is in a different category 
and the public is unlikely to be moved in any even modestly generous direction uh, in how we deal with that, and I'm actually not too troubled by that. The one place where we are to produce, able to produce some evidence of real capacity to move public opinion by drawing people's attention to some of the inequities in the system, fortunately, is in the area of how we waged the war on drugs. And in particular, we did something we called the, the uh, crack versus powder cocaine experiment, where we simply asked people if they approve or disapprove of the sentencing differential for crack versus powder, with the sentences being much harsher, actually 100 times harsher uh, with regard to uh, crack than for possession of powder. Uh, and substantial numbers of both the black and white population, but many more whites, approve of the sentencing differential. If we then experimentally manipulate that and say, well, are you aware that most of the people arrested for crack possession are black and most of those arrested for powder possession are white? In that case, we get a full 20% of the U.S. adult population on both sides of the racial divide, black and white, to go, uh-oh, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> it shouldn't be differential. And then we thought about it as good survey research and said, well, you know, all we asked is whether or not they approved of the differential. We didn't specify whether or not the punishment for powder should be brought up to that for crack or the punishment for crack should be brought down to that for powder. And in our punitive zeitgeist, you can guess what happened when we redid the experiment to clarify that. It's real important to move the punishment for powder up to that for crack, um, so that the general zeitgeist is not a very forgiving one. Uh, and it is pretty deeply rooted um, in, sadly, uh, anti-black animus, to the best of my ability to um, uh, calculate it. So I would love to hear some thought and reflection and speculation on how to break into that. My one thought, and then get close to the note on which I'll end on, is that the unbearable cost of sustaining this incredible uh, archipelago of prisons, uh, as you put it, will be the primary practical political entree to staunching um, this emergence of the racialized mass incarceration state. It just becomes clear that the trade-offs between brick and mortar for prisons versus computers and desks for classrooms, uh, salaries for prison guards versus raises for uh, teachers and nurses just become clearer and clearer and clearer as we make bigger and crazier investments uh, in a prison industrial complex. And I think not an ethical argument, um, not an expertise-based argument, but the crushing weight of the financial impossibility of sustaining this insane system will be our main entree toward um, uh, social reform. I was actually going to read you all the lyrics of Wynton Marsalis' new song, From the Plantation to the Penitentiary. Um, but you get enough of the flavor of it from the title. It's a beautiful thing that he's just done. Part of the point is to say that, that even our mainstream cultural producers are now very much focused on this exact nexus of concerns. To conclude, in my class and in my own writing on this subject, I emphasize that we as a democratic society have ushered into existence a deeply problematic state of affairs, a racialized mass incarceration state. This condition has reforged a long-standing and troubling nexus between race and crime in America. This is at one level a deeply ironic circumstance in an era where we have a large black middle class, where we have important civil rights protections, and more particularly where there are literally in the criminal justice system ever larger numbers of African American police officers and police chiefs, prosecutors and judges, uh, correction officials, and the like. How did it come to this? Um, and it is a circumstance that does now threaten core achievements and hopes 
of the great civil rights era. I want to applaud and thank Professor Lowry for making us think very deeply about what this circumstance says uh, about our character and our society and about the need to fashion a very different approach to these questions. Thank you. Well, I, I too want to thank uh, Glenn Lowry for giving such a wonderful presentation yesterday um, and to thank all the people connected with the Tanner Lectures here for asking me to uh, comment. I'm going to pick up literally with the last phrase uh, of Glenn's draft of the first lecture. Uh, he's describing there the Jeff Fagan study that you saw the slides of yesterday about uh, the difference in uh, uh, incarceration rates in different neighborhoods in New York. And he summarizes the mechanisms that contribute to and reinforce uh, incarceration, uh, ending with the following phrase. And voter disenfranchisement that weakens the political economy of neighborhoods. I want to pick up with that phrase and de detail the roles it plays in the story that Glenn told. Now, Glenn compares uh, America today both to its own past, the past of slavery, with its dehumanization and dishonoring of the slaves, and to other nations present, where the United States is incarcerating a quarter of the people worldwide uh, who are in jail anywhere. So I'm going to begin by illustrating how those two comparisons, one across time and the other across countries, play out with respect to the notion of offender disenfranchisement. As you probably know, the 15th Amendment to the US Constitution, which was ratified in 1870 at the end of the Civil War, uh, prohibits denial or abridgment of the right to vote because of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It's actually, as far as I know, the only time the word race actually appears in the Constitution. Now, according to the 1870 census, there were then approximately 1,083,484 black men in the United States over the age of 20. And since every state then had a voting age of 21 and no state then allowed women to vote, we can say essentially that the 15th Amendment at the end of the Civil War enfranchised 1,083,484 African Americans. By contrast, in the 1996 presidential election, 1.4 million black men were disenfranchised by the United States draconian offender disenfranchisement laws, many of them for extremely minor crimes. Crimes so minor, in fact, that even with the savage incarceration policies that Glenn details, these men were never sentenced to spend even a single day in jail. So let me describe just one of these people to you, uh, a man named Sanford McLaughlin, who actually brought a lawsuit in Mississippi. In the winter of 1988, Sanford McLaughlin went to the local Jitney Jungle, which is a, basically a kind of crappy grocery store, uh, and tendered a check for $150 to pay for his groceries. Uh, a check for which he had, in pompous terms lawyers use, insufficient funds on deposit. In other words, he bounced a check at the grocery store. Uh, the grocery store filed a complaint against him. He was convicted of one misdemeanor count of obtaining money under false pretenses. He was fined $75 plus court costs, ordered to pay the $150 to the Jitney Jungle, and placed on six months of non-reporting probation. Under Article 11, Section 241 of the Mississippi Constitution of 1890, he was disenfranchised for life. Now let me turn to a cross-national comparison. At one point anywhere in the Anglo-American world, all felonies imposed a civil death on convicted persons. But that hasn't been the law either in the United States or anywhere else in the world for centuries. 
America's disenfranchisement policy is hardly inherent in democratic societies today. Prisoners, let alone offenders who finished serving their sentences, vote in countries as diverse as the Czech Republic, Denmark, France, Israel, Japan, Kenya, the Netherlands, Norway, Peru, Poland, Romania, Sweden, and Zimbabwe. In Germany, the law obligates prison officials to encourage prisoners to assert their voting rights as part of their rehabilitation. Israel sets up polling places in prisons and detention centers, and its laws even permitted the man who assassinated Yitzhak Rabin to vote for his successor. The Supreme Courts of Canada and South Africa both issued opinions in the last few years requiring those nations to allow even offenders still serving time in prison to vote. Let me read just a brief statement from the opinion in the South African case, which was written by uh, Justice Albie Sachs of the South African Constitutional Court, a man who spent quite a bit of time in jail during the apartheid era and who would presumably therefore be disenfranchised for life if he lived in the United States. Uh, Justice Sachs's statement illustrates precisely the point about shared destinies and empathetic concern that Glenn was urging upon us yesterday. The vote of each and every citizen is a badge of dignity and of personhood. Quite literally, it says that everyone counts. In a country of great disparities of wealth and power, it declares that whoever we are, whether rich or poor, exalted or disgraced, we all belong to the same democratic South African nation, that our destinies are intertwined in a single interactive polity. We have no chance of seeing anything like that said by the Supreme Court in the United States uh, I think, any time in the lifetime of most of the people in this room. So let me return now to our history. Even in America, offender disenfranchisement has a suspicious pedigree. Scholars are not entirely in agreement about when offender disenfranchisement laws first began to appear. A law student note written about 30 years ago cites a provision in the Virginia Constitution <laughs> of 1776 as the first such law. By contrast, the more recent work by Chris Uggen and Jeff Manza uh, that um, Larry referred to, and I want to urge all of you here to attend the conference uh, next Friday at which Jeff Manza is going to be talking as part of, um, I think it's the Criminal Justice Center and a couple of, I think the sociology department's involved in this as well, but there's a conference on punishment um, occurring at the, yeah, and CSRE. So you should go and definitely see Jeff Manza, but in the work that he and Chris Huggin have done, they identified the first disenfranchising provision as appearing sometime in the 18-teens. But as late as the 1850s, a majority of states did not disenfranchise former offenders. It was only in the 1860s, the same decade in which we saw emancipation, that two-thirds of the states had adopted disenfranchisement provisions. Now, why is that so? Well, the link to race in those more candid times was quite explicit. Consider, for example, the Alabama Disenfranchising Constitutional Convention of 1901. Section 182 of that constitution disenfranchises individuals convicted of any crime involving moral turpitude. Even then Justice Rehnquist, writing for a unanimous Supreme Court, had no trouble striking down this provision that dealt with misdemeanants who had engaged in um, acts of moral turpitude. And the basis for the court's ruling was that this offender disenfranchisement provision was tainted by a racist purpose. Uh, Justice Rehnquist quoted John Knox, who was the president of the convention, in his opening address stating, and what is it that we want to do? Why, it is within the limits imposed by the federal constitution to establish white supremacy in this state. And as a result, they picked a list of misdemeanors 
uh, that they thought were especially likely to be committed by black people. So for example, uh, manslaughter is not on the list. Kill somebody and you could still vote. But vagrancy and living in adultery were on the list because a social scientific expert of the time, a planter from the Black Belt County, uh, Black Belt County said that these were the kinds of crimes uh, that black people were more likely to commit. And so it's a kind of early form of the front lash that Glenn de de described in uh, Vesla May Weaver's work yesterday. Rather than disenfranchising black people, you make black people into criminals, and that is what the vagrancy law was. It was a law that made it a crime not to be working for someone, which made all black people into criminals, and then you make criminals people who can't vote. Unfortunately, the same Justice Rehnquist who could see the racism in Alabama's constitution was also the author of another Supreme Court decision in Richardson against Ramirez in 1974, upholding the general permissibility of felon disenfranchisement. That case involved California's then lifetime ban on uh, felons voting. Uh, California now does not uh, have a lifetime ban. Indeed, while the Supreme Court was upholding the lifetime ban, the citizens of California in that somewhat more enlightened period were actually passing an initiative to change the law. Uh, but Justice Rehnquist read the second section of the 14th Amendment as a green light for disenfranchisement. Now, there's something staggeringly ironic about this, because the entire purpose of the 14th Amendment was, of course, to bring civil rights to the freedmen. Uh, every historian agrees that the provision that he relied on, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, was designed to protect black voting rights. In order to protect black voting rights, uh, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment contained the following provision, which threatened Southern states with losing their representation in Congress and in the Electoral College if they continued to bar blacks from voting. And here's the provision. But when the right to vote at any election is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, now here's the money language, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. So in a state like Mississippi that was 80% black at the time, if you denied black men the right to vote, Mississippi wouldn't get five seats in Congress, they would get one. You would reduce by 80% their representation. But the court read that provision, which was designed to punish the disenfranchisement of blacks, as affirmatively in, uh, authorizing the disenfranchisement of criminals. The results, uh, as I've said, are devastating. And they line up as a matter of timing, distressingly with the table Glenn showed us yesterday about racial attitudes and liberalism. It's troubling that the R on his table from 1950 to 1965, the last years of the solid democratic South and of black disenfranchisement was 0.3, while the R today from 1965 and the beginning of massive black enfranchisement in the South is 0.68. Let me now spend a few minutes sketching out the bi-directional relationship between disenfranchisement and savagely punitive politics. The actual impact of felon disenfranchisement is greater today than at any point in our history. Today we incarcerate proportionately more than six times as many individuals as we did when the Supreme Court decided Richardson against Ramirez. Current laws disenfranchise approximately 3.9 million voting age citizens, of whom roughly 1.4 million have completed their sentences. When disqualified citizens on probation or parole are added to those who've already completed their sentences, nearly three quarters of the people excluded from voting are not in prison. As I mentioned already, felon disenfranchisement has literally decimated the potential black electorate. 
The problem is especially striking in states with lifetime disqualification laws. In Alabama and Florida, nearly a third of all black men are permanently barred from voting. And in Iowa, Mississippi, Virginia, and Wyoming, roughly a quarter are permanently banned. The potential effects of this massive exclusion were driven home by the agonizingly close 2000 presidential race in Florida. Florida disenfranchises more people than any other state, approximately 827,000. Slightly 600,000 of these 827,000 individuals are people who have completed their sentences, completed their probation, completed their parole, and have been discharged entirely from the criminal justice system. Approximately 10.5% of Florida's adult black population is disenfranchised, compared with only 4.4% of the non-black population. George Bush ostensibly won the state by 530-something votes. A recent study by Chris Uggen and Jeff Manza estimated that had ex-offenders who had completed their sentences been permitted to vote at the same incredibly low rate as their equally poor and badly educated but not convicted compatriots, Al Gore would have carried Florida by more than 31,000 votes. But one need not indulge in counterfactual hypotheticals or mathematical modeling to see how felon disenfranchisement distorted the 2000 election. Because Florida's laws not only excluded hundreds of thousands of ex-offenders from the polls, as the United States Commission on Civil Rights found, they disenfranchised significant numbers of eligible voters as well due to a profoundly flawed purge process. The process was plagued by false positives. For example, if you showed up at the polls with a name like James Brown, and there's a James Brown convicted of a felony anywhere in the United States, you might have been barred unless you could show you weren't that James Brown. Uh, and the result of this was that the statewide purge removed huge numbers of people who weren't even authorized to be excluded from the polls, and those people weren't allowed to cast ballots. Statewide in Florida, 8,456 black voters were removed from the voting rolls. After the election, of the 4,847 people who appealed their exclusion, 2,430 were restored to the list as eligible voters, but too late to cast a ballot in the 2000 election. In one large county in Florida, the supervisor of, of elections later estimated that 15% of the people purged were in fact eligible to vote, and that a majority of those purged were African Americans. In short, Florida showed, in a particularly striking form, the collateral damage that the collateral consequences of criminal disenfranchisement can cause, denying absolutely qualified citizens the ability to participate, and wholly blameless communities the ability to elect the candidates of their choice. As Henry T. Wingate, a Reagan appointee, but also the one black federal judge in Mississippi remarked in restoring Mr. McLaughlin's right to vote, the severity of the punishment is undeniable. Disenfranchisement is the harshest civil sanction imposed by a democratic society. When brought beneath its acts, the disenfranchised is severed from the body politic and condemned to the lowest form of citizenship were voiceless at the ballot box, disinherited, must sit idly by while others elect his civil leaders and while others choose the fiscal and government policies which will govern him and his family. Now the year 2000 also involved another event that highlights the racially salient political consequences of the war on crime and its, and its attendant disenfranchisement of large numbers of black citizens. Under the so-called usual residence rule, the Census Bureau counts incarcerated individuals as residents of the jurisdiction and when they're, where they're incarcerated and not where they came from. Now, in many states, this results in, large, in largely white rural communities having their population totals enhanced 
at the expense of the heavily urban, overwhelmingly minority communities from which most inmates come. Peter Wagner, who runs the aptly named Prisoners of the Census project, reports that although rural counties contain only 20% of the US population, 60% of new prison construction occurs there. And we might talk during the discussion about a broader point that we are actually creating two nether classes, to use Glenn's term, of badly educated young men in the United States. The rural white ones are becoming the guards of the rural black one, of the urban black ones who are sent downstate or upstate. Now this reallocation of po uh, population has an important political effect. Because state legislative districts are also based on the census population, people in prison serve essentially as inert ballast in the redistricting process. They enable the underpopulation of rural, overwhelmingly white conservative districts relative to urban, heavily minority liberal ones, thereby potentially changing the overall composition of legislative bodies. For example, in New York State, seven conservative upstate Republicans represent state senatorial districts that comply with one person, one vote, only because incarcerated prisoners are contained within their population base. But these officials are neither descriptively nor substantively representative of their inmate constituents. For example, one of the upstate districts is represented by Republican State Senator Dale Volcker. There are more than 11,000 inmates at eight state correctional facilities in his district. Given the economic benefits prisons provide to otherwise economically hard-hit rural communities, it is hardly surprising that Senator Volcker boasts on his website of being a leading defender of New York's draconian drug laws, which have resulted in the huge prison population that then employs his constituents. It is hard to imagine Senator Volcker as anything other than the most notional representative of his inmate constituents. He's actually been quoted as saying that it was a good thing his captive constituents couldn't vote because if they could, they would never vote for me. <laughs> as a result of this transfer of electoral power on the basis of the transfer of prisoners, a number of commentators have compared the inclusion of incarcerated inmates in the population base of the jurisdictions where they're incarcerated to the notorious three-fifths clause in the original Constitution, which enhanced the political clout of slaveholding states by including slaves in the population base for calculating congressional seats and electoral votes while treating them as property for all other purposes. Now, Glenn urged us yesterday to consider the effects of mass incarceration on the communities from which the prisoners come. It's impossible to calculate the entire political effect of criminal disenfranchisement laws, in part because politics is so complicated. But it is at least suggestive that the states that disenfranchise the largest number of citizens also have some of the most draconian criminal codes, and it is not entirely clear in which direction the causal arrow runs. It may well be that it is precisely because their electorates are skewed that they enact increasingly harsh laws that reinforce the skew. This may be especially true to the extent that the criminal law is enforced in a racially biased and disproportionate way. If the burden of criminal sanctions falls primarily on a group that's underrepresented within the electorate, even the relatively weak political safeguards against overcriminalization may disappear. Angela Barron's recent work argues that the perceived racial threat is a major explanatory variable in predicting a state's disenfranchisement practices and concludes that the racial composition of state prisons is firmly associated with the adoption of state felon disenfranchisement laws. States with greater non-white prison populations have been far more likely to ban convicted felons from voting than states with pro proportionally fewer non-whites in the criminal justice system. Conversely, states with a small proportion of African-American prisoners are the most likely to adopt 
uh, to abolish restrictions on ex-offenders voting. And the dynamic relationship among crime, incarceration, and disenfranchisement may be even more complex than this. Just at yesterday afternoon, while I was preparing my remarks, uh, I received a, an email from a former colleague of mine, Bill Stuntz, who's now at Harvard and who's been studying precisely the odd intersection Glenn discussed yesterday, that as crime rates in the United States have dropped, the incarceration rates have continued to go up. Bill asked me for figures about the increased black representation in Congress and state legislatures after the 1990 round of redistricting, which was the first round of redistricting really governed by the Voting Rights Act in its most robust form. After I sent him some information about where there were new black representatives in Congress uh, after 1990, he wrote back the following. It's interesting. You can slice it several different ways, and they all seem to come out with a significant correlation. The bigger the increase in black representation, measured by the ratio of black members of Congress to black population of the state, the bigger the drop in violent crime in the 1990s. Again, it's hard to draw causal arrows here. But if Bill is right, he's suggesting in part that punitive disenfranchisement might be contributing to, rather than deterring, increased levels of criminal activity. Now, I want to end on a somewhat optimistic note. Uh, the tenor of the debate over felon disenfranchisement has taken a remarkable turn in the United States in recent years. Uh, the courts have been totally unsympathetic to these cases for the most part. But after a generation of essentially unsuccessful litigation, politics has made some dramatic strides. A conservative Republican governor of Alabama signed legislation making it easier for ex-offenders to gain their, regain their voting rights. Several other states have recently, as a statutory matter, made the restoration of voting rights automatic on completion of an offender's sentence or within a short period of time thereafter. Recent public opinion surveys find that over 80% of Americans believe that ex-offenders should regain the right to vote at some point, and more than 40% of Americans would allow offenders on probation or parole to vote. Presidential candidates such as John Edwards and former presidents such as Bill Clinton, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter have also supported reinstatement. And although one recent study by economist Tom Miles at the University of Chicago Law School purports to show that felon disenfranchisement law have no discernible effect on state-level rates of voter turnout because these people wouldn't vote anyway. I returned home last night to find an article in this week's uh, issue of The New Yorker in the talk of the town section uh, about men living in a house in New York that's a residence for parolees and for the other former offenders. And a guy who lived in the house for many years named Mustafa comes back to visit the house. Uh, and uh, he explains that he made a mistake uh, 30 years ago, and he's finally finished paying off that mistake. And what's the thing he most wants to do now? He wants to go and register to vote. Uh, now, Glenn asked us what, yesterday what we could do. And he was asked that question as well uh, in the uh, questions afterwards. And it seems to me that the least that those of us who can vote can do is to insist that our votes will go only to candidates who promise to restore the voting rights of all citizens. Thank you. Okay, well, um, what can I say? I mean, these were two wonderful sets of comments. I'm so grateful and actually even a little tearful at hearing Larry Bobo's uh, uh, affirming uh, response to my talk. Uh, I, I, really, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, not just affirming, not just uh, saying, you know, Brother Glenn, you're pulling in the right direction at last. <laughs> But it's so, but so intellectually rich and, and so provocative. And um, I don't want to keep us from being able to engage in a colloquy about that. 
uh, and also I'm, um, I'm informed and inspired and a little bit depressed, but uh, uh, nevertheless um, uh, moved by uh, Pam Carlin's uh, uh, short, compass, but uh, comprehensive uh, review of the problem of felony disenfranchisement. Um, my student, Andres Idaraga, uh, is not here. Uh, but uh, if he were here, I think he would uh, be saying something like what I'm about to read to you from uh, a uh, letter that he wrote me applying for a place in my class, my undergraduate class at Brown on um, the economics and politics of racial inequality in the United States. Uh, a principal aspect of my interest in your class is personal. I am a 29-year-old Latino college student who at the age of 20 was sentenced to serve 45 years in prison, 14 to serve in the rest suspended sentence for my involvement with drugs and guns. I served six and a half years, spending three in a maximum security prison and will be on either parole or probation until I'm 58 years old. As a minority whose parents initially came to this country illegally, only to go live in an inner city ghetto, this class provides a new framework from which to view my experiences. In other words, I have lived it. Now I want to look at my experience as a scholar. And he goes on. Uh, as he was engaged in his scholarly work, he wrote this, uh, this very fine paper, and I want to quote to you a little bit about it. It's apropos of the question of politics and felony disenfranchisement, because Rhode Island, uh, just in the last election cycle, uh, passed a, a ballot initiative that um, amended the state's constitution to enfranchise felons who have served their, uh, who have paid their penalty and served their time in prison. Uh, during the campaign to end felony disenfranchisement in Rhode Island, the successful campaign, I recall several of us from the Right to Vote campaign having a meeting with one A.T. Wall, the director of the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, where we presented some data from a study we conducted in the hope of receiving his endorsement. Okay, and I'm also in a way indirectly addressing the question about the role of data in social analysis, the facts. Uh, we presented some data. Um, we had found that in parts of predominantly black South Providence, 40% of black males aged 18 to 34 had lost their right to vote. The majority of the cases due to nonviolent drug offenses. Our goal was to explain to Director Wall that once the punishment of incarceration ended, the punitive excess of stripping a citizen's fundamental right to vote contributed both literally and psychologically to the isolation of this community. These already marginalized citizens were now prohibited from participating in the electoral process and had a concrete manifestation of their stigmatization, the fact that they were no longer being considered full citizens in a democracy due to their legal exclusion from it. Director Wall answered our presentation with the words, quoting, statistics are stubborn. And from then on, he supported our effort, although he stopped short of an official endorsement. So statistics are stubborn. And certainly, nothing I was saying last night in my um, preliminary remarks where I commented on the limitations of science as a way of getting a handle on this problem should be understood to uh, say that we don't want to get the facts. We definitely want to get the facts. But Director Wall, looking those facts in the face, nevertheless wasn't prepared as commissioner of corrections in the state, a position that could have had a lot of positive influence on the way that that campaign was received. Fortunately, it was successful nonetheless, publicly to endorse what he was persuaded on the facts to be the right thing to do. What might his reasons have been that he wasn't prepared publicly to endorse? I suspect, not having read your 
careful uh, uh, focus group and survey research on opinion. Nevertheless, his intuition told him, you know, he takes his political career and his future in his hands if he comes out on the side of the thugs versus uh, whatever. He couldn't know which way the thing was going to swing. He decided to, uh, to uh, play it safe. Um, and uh, I don't know the answer to the question. I just want to, well, hold on, let me just do one thing at a time. So what I was doing was not saying, let's not get the facts. What I was doing, however, was saying that the facts in and of themselves are insufficient to the task. Okay. What I was saying was certainly not, let's not reason carefully as quantitative social scientists, as economists, as sociologists. But what I was saying was that when questions of value at stake are at stake, that reasoning well may be insufficient to bring us to an answer to those questions. So if I assert that the humanity of the person held behind bars must be counted, must be reckoned, must be recognized, that we're less as a people to the extent that we don't do that, it seems to me there's no way that I can demonstrate that claim with data. I can certainly support an argument on behalf of that claim with the facts. I ought to ground such an argument with the facts, but where else can I appeal? How could I persuade the Thurmstroms? I wrote a 7,000-word review in the Atlantic Monthly about that book, and which prominently figured their black crime language, their, um, uh, who, what was the case of the fellow who killed his wife and then drove the car into a black community and told the police that they had been robbed Charles by Stewart. a black man, Charles Stewart. The Thurmstroms in that book say, how can you blame the police for believing Charles Stewart? Just as you say, because black crime is so bad. Um, I don't know that argument is going to talk Abigail and Stephen Thurmstrom out of that position. I'm not quite sure how they got into it. Yeah, no, I, and rather, rather, I know full well that it's not going to talk them out of that position. But I'm not quite sure how they got into it. You, you, you know, I mean, this is... Anyway, so I don't want to, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, uh, talk off the top of my head about these things. I think these things are really hard. Um, but the, the thing I want to reiterate from what I said in this vein uh, last night is that um, um, I'm, I'm very much taken by Michael Walzer's uh, work. It's a little bit dated now. This book of essays, The Company of Critics, and then the little short theoretical piece, Interpretation and Social Criticism, where he offers, he says, you know, there are kind of three paths in moral philosophy. One of them is Moses comes down with the tablets, and then you just know what's true. Another one is you're really, really smart, like Immanuel Kant, and you can deduce it all from first principles. <laughs> and then the third is, and the one that he endorses is, you live within a tradition, a lived tradition of uh, civic and ongoing communal life. The tradition has to be interpreted and reinterpreted with each generation. We got to tell the story. What's the story of the country? What is the country about? Who are we? Okay. Now, it's about persuasion, ultimately, at the end of the day. Not about compelling agreement on the force of logic. It's about making people come to the table, forcing them to confront the question of who are we, and persuading them that we're better than what our practice suggests. This is Michael Walzer's template for what social criticism might look like. It's the kind of thing that I was inspired by, as I was saying, really, to my fellow economist. You know, cost-benefit is not going to be enough to get us there, right? We got a mechanism, and we understand the workings of it as a logical problem, but where's the spirit of it, okay? And I'm not talking about something transcendental. I'm talking about in lived human communities, 
there's a spirit. There's a sense of what we're about. There's a, there's a collectivity, collective enterprise. Or not. Or not. Something like that. Um, anyway, let me see if there's anything else here that I want to... Um, oh, oh, another thing um, that um, Larry Bobo said that I would like to uh, just comment on briefly has to do with, uh, and I think this is very important, this is very important. Can you make a racial argument? Can you make an argument for racial egalitarianism, what I call racial egalitarianism, without a showing of discrimination? Does the argument have to come out of a grounding of discrimination? Right? Because Al Bloomstein tells us when he runs the numbers that it doesn't look like conditional on the rates of offending, that the prosecutorial process or the sentencing process or whatever is at least obviously and wildly racially disparate. You can account for a big chunk of the racial uh, gap in the rates of incarceration by reference solely to racial differences in offending rates. Therefore, are we done? I'm not saying Bloomstein says we're done, but are we done? Are we done? Because we can't show the discrimination, are we done? Well, no, I say no, we're not done. Okay. And um, um, I'm, I'm, I want to give an example that really sort of moves us away from, um, from the uh, crime area just for a minute, and it's Ira Katznelson's recent book, When Affirmative Action Was White. Ira Katznelson, the Columbia University historian. It's basically a brief history of the New Deal and the post-World War II social policy. Uh, with the GI Bill and whatnot, and basically what he says was, major mobilization and institutional transformation and public action uh, was undertaken, which uh, mostly not intentionally had the effect of constructing and distributing benefit for social mobility in a way that disadvantaged blacks. Okay, southern senators sitting in the uh, uh, Congress of the United States when the New Deal uh, was uh, when Roosevelt was trying to get the New Deal through. You had to go through these guys. You had, they were chairing the committees. They were a part of the coalition that was needed to get the legislation passed. They had their own interests. They could see that if you had um, um, uh, unemployment benefits for agricultural workers, that that was going to affect the wage rate for agricultural labor in the southern labor market. They could see that if you had um, aid to families with dependent children for mothers who didn't have husbands and who had children that was administered in some neutral way outside the control of the local uh, bureaucrats or commissars, that that was going to dramatically transform the nature of social relations, the hierarchical nature of social relations, the way of life to be preserved in the southern uh, part of the country. And so they made sure that the New Deal was crafted in a way that minimized the extent to which its provisions were going to uh, upset that order. And in so doing, it helped to disenfranchise blacks. When uh, Roosevelt or Truman, with the GI Bill, uh, huge benefits to people, served in the military, uh, assistance for uh, acquiring housing, for getting higher education, uh, loans to farmers and such like that. Uh, but but, but uh, because of the structure of who was able to get into the army in the first place and had the opportunity to serve, the distribution of those benefits hit in a way that was uh, not uh, equally uh, advantageous to blacks as had been otherwise. Now, that wasn't affirmative action as we understand it. Right? That wasn't somebody sitting back and saying, aha, here's the master plan. We're going to make sure that the blacks don't get anything. Okay? Certainly, there was probably some of that going on with those southern senators that I made, refer to, that I made, uh, made reference to. But mainly, it was um, the kind of momentum of political and social development then on acting on something that was not explicitly racial, but the consequences of which, the, the uh, incidence of which, uh, was unequal and disparate by race. That could have been corrected. 
if not at the time, certainly in retrospect. Much of what it, is, it seems to me that we're talking about uh, with crime and race is like that. And uh, while I haven't read this book, uh, the last uh, one that you made mention to uh, mention of, The Challenge of Crime, Rethinking Our Response, I haven't read it, I will. Um, I'm very much uh, taken by this idea of, uh, thought occurred to me actually, of, you know, let's not, and Michael Tomry argues in this vein a little bit, of let's not do it until we've looked ahead and tried to calculate what the likely social, human, racial, disparate consequences of it would be. Oftentimes this stuff is uh, knowable in advance. We could uh, decide not to undertake an otherwise plausible or rational or creditable course of public action if we reckoned plausibly from what we know that the consequence of doing so would be to exacerbate racial inequality, and that ought to be a reason not to do it. So an argument like that doesn't rest on an assumption of discrimination, but it does rest on a aversion to the historical reproduction and perpetuation of such racial inequality as exists. All it requires of us, it seems to me, and I, I wouldn't expect that you disagree with this at all, is an acknowledgement that lowering racial inequality is a good in and of itself, regardless of whether or not it comes about as a consequence of stopping the violation of someone's rights. We don't have to view, and I'm not arguing now, I'm just making a declaration to everybody, we don't have to view this solely as a procedural matter, case by case, one-off, how are people being treated, let's check the meter, did they get the equal weight on the scale, therefore fine, let the chips fall where they may. We can have a much more holistic, a much more comprehensive view of what it is that we're about that doesn't just rest our moral judgment on the treatment of individuals, but looks at what the full consequence of our process of treating individuals might be, something like that. So anyway, uh, with that, I'll stop, thank you. So we can entertain questions now. Please indicate um, in your question to whom you are directing your question. Yeah, Herb? No. Uh, my name is Herbert Lederman. I'm a professor of psychiatry emeritus at Stanford. Uh, and uh, I should tell a little bit about my background so that, uh, that my comments will be understood. By the way, it was a wonderful talk. I learned a great deal, Professor Lowry, and I thank you for it. Thank you. Uh, I've been a consultant. First of all, how many people in this room have been to a uh, prison, uh, have been to the California Youth Authority, which I'm going to talk about? Uh, how many people have actually been there and talked to people or been and visited these places? How many people? Well, that's, that's about right for an academic group. Uh, very few people. Uh, I've consulted at the California Youth Authority for the last 28 years. I go there once or twice a month, and I see the children who are there. These are youngsters between 12 and 13 years of age to 18 years of age. So I have this perspective over uh, 28 years. And over that time, uh, there, oh, by, by and large now, there are very few white youngsters there. When I first started there, there were about one third, 20% white youngsters, and then black and then Hispanic and uh, very few, no Asians. But one of the things that impressed me was that there were no youngsters from the middle class. In fact, it's rare that there are children from the working class. But there is a true underclass. And that is the preponderance of youngsters in this institution. Now the institution is mostly consists of uh, mainly his the largest number, Hispanics, 
uh, next, African Americans, uh, Native Americans, that's another group in our society, and uh, Asians. And these are Asians, by that I mean youngsters from Cambodia, Hmong, and others in the Central Valley. Uh, I review the history. I literally see these youngsters when I'm there and consulting with the staff. I see them for about one and a half to two hours. And I review the case for at least that. So about three hours. The cases are, are well uh, written up by the social workers in the uh, uh, unit in, San in Sacramento where, they, where, they, where the youngsters come into the system. So they're excellent social histories. One of the very important elements in this, first of all, uniformly lower class, fact below lower class. By that I mean families of just absolutely no, no structure at all. That is, it may be a, a single mother, if they're lucky, uh, rare fathers on the average. I'm overgeneralizing, but that's the typical kind of case that we see, both for Hispanic, African American, even, and white, it's, that's the fundamental problem. The issue is drug abuse during, during mother's pregnancy. And methamphetamine is the drug of choice. And what it does is damage the central nervous system. So we see all the sequelae of that. That's the first point. The second is that these youngsters are tested so that many of them have average IQ, some are below. Obviously, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is is, is, a, is a major factor. One of the profound issues in our society is we get youngsters, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, they read at the second and third grade level. They're tested so that they should be able to read, but they don't. And we, I simply ask the question, have you been to school? Oh yes, I'm, I've been to the sixth or seventh grade. I said, well, did you, where, how, how, why is it that you haven't learned to read? And they say, well, and this would be from South Central LA, from Richmond, from parts of Sacramento, Fresno, or whatever. Uh, they say, well, by and large, we go to school and you check in so that, and they don't say this, so they get the average daily rate credit and then they go home or they go on the streets. So they are uneducated. There's no, there's no monitoring of this behavior. So my point I want to emphasize to Professor Lowry, will you comment on the social class component? Because this cuts across. The staff is not predominant, even though it's, I go to Stockton. The staff is predominantly mixed, uh, relatively few whites. They're mostly African-American, uh, educated African-American security, uh, Hispanic, uh, uh, Professional staff was firstly mainly uh, European white, but they're now okay. professionals of all of all groups. So that's not an issue. Okay, the well, thanks. Period. Perhaps you could uh, respond to that. Yeah, yeah, briefly. Um, what I want to say is, as a matter of um, causation, why is the kid in trouble? Why is the kid in the detention center? What has happened in the kid's life? Why is the kid not educated? Certainly, social class more so than race per se, is what one is going to look to. One's going to look to the structure of neighborhood. One's going to look to the attentiveness of the parent. If the parent was a methamphetamine addict, that's going to, as you say, leave the kid with a very tough start in life. And that's not a matter of what color the parent was. That's a matter of 
what the processes were in that kid's life, uh, which you could identify with class location. But what I would say is that social class issues in many countries present themselves, and those countries respond to them differently. And one might argue, I don't, first of all, I want to say as a preface, I don't believe one has to choose here. I don't believe that there's a matter, it's an either or, that we have to have a ranking or a scale, you know, 80%, 20%, 60%, 40%. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm certainly not going to say, no, it's race, not class. Okay? Uh, but I also don't believe, no, it's class, not race. And what I wanted to in, uh, offer up uh, on that uh, account is um, to say that the extent of solidarity as a society that we feel across the class lines toward those whose social class location may disadvantage them is plausibly in the context of American society, particularly if we compare it to other industrial democracies, partly a reflection of the role that race interacting with class plays in the construction of our polity. In other words, why don't we have a more generous welfare state? Why don't we provide health care to everybody who needs it? And why have we decided to lock up and throw away the key on a whole lot of poor white people with, with, with less sympathy for their position? Perhaps because in the mix and in the calculation and in the sentiment and in the sense of the construction of our we, the fact of race exacerbates the class uh, difference and makes it harder for people to see across the class line their own self-interest, which in a, I don't know, Scandinavian country or I don't know, a European country, people, people may see uh, much more readily. I mean, those countries have their own dynamics and their own complexities now, increasingly so, uh, and their welfare states are under pressure, perhaps from the very kind of dynamic that I'm talking about, which is to say, when we were all Swedes sitting around, it was one thing to be spending, uh, taxing ourselves at 60% and spending a whole lot of money on providing everything for everybody, but now that we've got Turks in the mix, it's another problem, something like that. So, so my, my answer to you is that of course, at the bottom of the society, the dynamics are driven in the first instance by class, of course. But the community's reaction to the problem of class in the United States, I don't think can be understood sensibly without reference to our racial history. Other questions, comments? Uh, I'd like to ask a yes. question which Larry, I think, posed, and I want to hear more discussion. Where do we go from here? And I really mean that in the sense of what can be done concretely. For example, uh, to what extent might curriculum changes in our universities, uh, in our colleges, or where leaders are trained, uh, what can be done? I, I accept the facts, I accept all, this, all of that, but what do we do? What can be done? I assume that's directed at me. Let me preface my response by saying, with due respect, and obviously the question is important, how am I supposed to know? And, I, and with due respect, with due respect, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you, do you see where I'm coming from? In other words, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on these matters so much so that I'm going to construct an actionable list of how we're going to solve the problem. So, so, so let me... Let me refer to somebody who actually is an expert. I'm talking about John Duulio. I mean, that is to say, someone who spends his life, his professional life, studying corrections, which I do not do. This is his list from years ago, published in the Wall Street Journal. Short answer is, we know what to do about this problem. That's not the problem, okay? Uh, repeal mandatory minimum drug laws. 
release drug-only offenders, and mandate drug treatment. Reinvest and reinvent probation and parole. Uh, and then he goes on. Stop federalizing crime policy and modify federal sentencing guidelines. Uh, he observes that Ed Meese has taken this position and uh, uh, many others. Uh, here's another one on the list. Study and promote faith-based crime prevention and restorative justice. That might be a little bit more controversial. Um, redouble efforts at juvenile crime prevention. And then he goes on at some length about that. Um, so, you know, as I said last night, I know you weren't there. I said, uh, look it, if we want to have a lot less people in prison, if we want to go from the 700 plus per 100,000 that we uh, incarcerate now down to, I don't know, 150 or so per 100,000 that we incarcerated 30 years ago, if we actually want to do this, we have to invent institutions that are alternative to prisons to deal with people who break the law. Certainly, as a practical matter, you can't just throw open the gates and just let everybody go free. And you can't say, after we've done all of these things, of course, the numbers would come down. But even so, if we say probation and parole, then we need really more robust and effective institutions of probation and parole. And we would need to put a lot more money into it. And then, of course, there could be this, what you call it, liberal stuff about uh, like domestic martial plan and you know, really investing more in our kids and our schools and so forth and so on like that. I'm for that, too. But uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really think, what I'm trying to say is, this is just my opinion, I don't think the, the, the problem of what is to be done is like a mystery. Mm. I think the problem is how would we actually get the people to go along with what we know needs to be done. Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert in that either, but, 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 but you know, yeah. Okay. Facts, I do, you know, all that. I hear that. Yeah. But where, what happens? How do you stop this? How do you do that? How do you got to change? You got to stop. I wonder if I, I could ask a question that just follows up on this. Because, I mean, one thing that strikes me is that there is one political possibility that. A little louder, not, please. There's one political possibility that does not rely on arousing a greater level of compassion among the American citizenry or the transcendence of residual um, racial antipathies. And that is the anti-paternalist strain in um, American political culture. I mean, there may be an analogy here between um, the war on drugs and, and the temperance movement. I mean, I don't know much about what explains the ultimate failure of the temperance movement in North America, but I would be very surprised if it were um, compassion for alcoholics or sympathy for the criminals who ended up being incarcerated because they were involved in, um, in, in, in selling booze illegally. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, from a tough-minded, uh, even a right-wing libertarian perspective, the, the war on drugs has been a failure. Um, and to acknowledge that and take legislative initiatives that recognize the failure certainly won't give you the full panoply of uh, welfare state policies that you have been talking about um, and would not profoundly change the racial dynamic in American society, but it could significantly mitigate what is currently a vast problem. I don't know if any of you would like to comment on that. Um, yeah, 
two things. One is the there are two things that kind of explain the failure of the temperance movement after the, as I understand it, after they got prohibition through. And the two things were, one is something that Larry kind of alluded to, which is the cost of creating this huge criminal apparatus and the corruption right. that came around in police departments and the like as a result of it. So that was one thing. And the other was something that, that Glenn alluded to in his talk yesterday, which is, Many more Americans drink beer and thought of themselves as people who are being disadvantaged by this moralizing temperance movement than think of themselves as potentially victims of the war on drugs because it's the they, the they we right. uh, distinction there. Um, and you know, to kind of tie that back to something about um, Lucius's question, if you look at what I think of as the most successful political criminal reform movement in recent years in the United States, it has been the innocence and exoneration movement. Um, uh, and people were very worried when that movement first started that it was going to actually hurt the death penalty abolition movement because the focus on the innocent right. would then leave people saying, but there are these guilty people and they deserve to die. And it turned out, oddly enough, that that isn't what happened. What happened is people got more and more uncertain about the unfairnesses and the like in the system. And so I think one of the things here is focusing, even though we recognize many of the people in prison are in prison because they committed the crime, whether they should be in prison or not, most of them are probably guilty, is to focus on issues that have to do with either innocent people. So focusing on, for example, the fact that Florida's disenfranchisement law disenfranchises a whole bunch of people who were never convicted of a crime. Um, or focusing on the extent to which people have served their time and have satisfied our judgment as to what their punishment should be and like is a kind of strategy that says, look, these people are just like us, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to focusing solely on the compassion argument, right. because compassion requires you to think these, the common compassion is about with, right? right? And, and so if you don't have some notion that these people are like you, yeah. it's very hard to get policy to move. And so you want to maybe start incrementally with the people who seem most like the kind right. of median voter as the... That's very helpful. Yes? Uh, another thing uh, to, to your question, Lucius, that gets to the American white community is economics. Mm -hmm. If you can convince right. a, a person, uh, I spent... 10 years uh, very actively in a program in Colorado working with at-risk youth and it was in a community of very, very wealthy people and we brought in a hundred youth from all over the country. Uh, it was, it was uh, headed by a man who was able to gain the trust of these kids who had been there, done that and who uh, was working on self-esteem projects with these kids. But, and so aside from being very involved in that part of the program, I also had to talk to the people in this community and get them to understand that they could spend their tax money at 46000 per head to incarcerate these kids once they, they did things worse than what they were doing, or at least got caught for it. Or they could put money into these prevention programs and, and save money. And that seemed to hit home yes. to them. So yeah, if you frame it as the fact that we're going to save you money by by having you, uh, you know. So one aspect of this is to is to find a local program that works with with young people and uh, in order to keep them from 
you know, to get them back on track. They all have these dreams. They all have, you know, dreams just like every one of us and goals just like every one of us. They get off track for all these different reasons, but but they're basically kids that that can succeed in whatever uh, goals that they want in really positive ways. So anyway, that's one thing. And then my, just an, a question to Pam uh, or to anyone. You know. We have a national policy about allowing people to vote. Why is it that we have state policy about disenfranchisement? That how how can sta individual states? One state says once you're done with the probation or parole, you can vote. How can that be if we have this national policy that's that? Talks about you know our right to vote. We don't have a national policy. Is the short answer to our right to vote? No, the constitution's the, the right to vote that the constitution gives to people piggybacks as a constitutional matter off the state's decisions about who can vote, and then it simply says there's certain national reasons that you can't deny somebody the right to vote. Can't deny them the right to vote on the account of race, on account of gender on account of age once they turn 18. But generally, the right to vote is left to the states. The administration of elections is left to the states. There's very little nationalization of that. Um, and, and, and so you have this huge variation. And it, you know, states that have traditionally disenfranchised black people have now, you know, they can't do that anymore because we do have a national policy on that straight up. But what they can do is continue to disenfranchise people on the basis of um, you know, on the basis of felony conviction, and I'll just note one thing that's happened in the last three or three or four years, um, and put in a pitch for another conference here at Stanford that you might be interested in going to, which is starting tomorrow and then over to Saturday, the law school's Constitutional Law Center and the uh, American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society are putting on a conference on voting and democracy. And one of the big things in recent years is the rise of something called the voter ID movement which is requiring people to present government-issued photo IDs in order to vote. And it is absolutely clear that the result of this is to throw huge numbers of African-Americans off the voting roll. 18% of African-American men who are allowed to vote, so we're not even talking about the ones who are disenfranchised, 18% of African-American men between the ages of 18 and 30 who are allowed to vote do not have a valid government-issued photo ID. They're too poor and too urban to need driver's licenses. They don't have enough money to go anywhere else, so why get a passport? And 176,000 voters in Georgia in the 2000 election are people who don't have voter ID. All those people are going to be denied the right to vote now. So the national policy on this is one in which the fear of crime and the fear of fraud, as if, given the one thing that economists have done is figured out are you more likely to cast a decisive vote in a national election or to be killed in an auto accident on your way to the polls? And the answer is the latter. So the idea that there are a whole lot of people who aren't qualified to vote who are somehow showing up at the polls you know, to vote even though they're not caught is just ludicrous. But the national policies are driven by a lack of data and this huge amount of fear. Josh. Um, so So there were three um, lines of argument that you were suggesting, and I think they've also come out of this discussion. I just want to say something about them, maybe comment on them, and get you to comment on them. So there's one line of argument that um, was 
pro prominent than what you were saying last night was a, a sort of the, the drugs argument, which Eamon just picked up on. Um, deal with incarceration, the, the incarceration issue by, through uh, decriminalization. And uh, that strikes me as hopeless for three reasons. Um, it's true that the, some people on the right are for decriminalization. That's because they're libertarians. They're for, right. It's not, but it's not a, a mass opinion doesn't right. look like that. And the, the first reason is one that you gave last night, which is that lots of uh, middle class parents, white and black, don't want drugs being sold around them. Yeah. Uh, secondly, they're not worried about their, ki their kids going to jail because they can, you know, if they got to get out of jail free card, they called a, you know, hire a lawyer. So they're not worried about their kids going to jail for that, which goes to the issue about people's fates being tied together. It's not going to be punitive for um, their kids. And the third thing, which is, I think, something that speaks to uh, something, uh, a, a, a thrust of your thing, is, you know, you get all the, you decriminalize a bunch of drugs, uh, and what you're going to end up with is a smaller prison population that it's going to be vastly African-American, mm -hmm. Uh, lots of people still incarcerated, just as punitive, just as... So I, that seems to me to be not a very promising... Uh, I, I'm all for it, but you know, it doesn't seem like a very promising direction. The second thing, and I think this is, I guess this is what you're going to talk about some tonight, which is the issue about responsibility. So the thrust of the argument is, uh, you know, there's a division of labor. There's individual responsibility and there's collective responsibility. And if you're not doing your collective responsibility right, providing decent schools, decent health care, uh, decent income distribution, uh, then how can you hold individuals responsible for uh, their bad behavior? Now, as a philosophical matter, uh, you know, I I'm right with you on that completely with you. As an argument, as a political argument, uh, strikes me as a non-starter. You know, there's a difference between philosophy and politics, and I, I'm, I'm completely with you, but I just don't think that that argument that says, you didn't, we didn't do our job, so uh, you, know, you, get out of, you, know, you shouldn't be punished so then there's a third line of argument. It was suggested, I think, very forcefully in one of the comments that you made today, which is you just begin from this observation. You describe the current practices of incarceration. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it, this is very, you know, it's incredibly depressing uh, and humiliating, shameful, as a, you know, nationally, I think for, for the country, it's shameful. Um, and my guess is that there are lots of people who are not for decriminalizing drugs and who are not going to buy into the responsibility argument, who listen to what you say and think, that's, you know, that's horrible. You know, maybe the Thurnstons can come along and say, yeah, well, but, no, it's horrible, but it's justified. But even they think, it's a pretty bad thing, and you better have a pretty compelling justification for it, because that's really bad. It seems to me that if you, and you imagine a future, suppose you grow, go to a group of people and say, imagine this future, that 15 years from now, the prison population will be 
Crime rate will be more or less the same as what it is now. Prison population will be half of what it is now. And instead of half the prisoners being African American only, 30, but don't be twice represented, it would be 30% African American. How many people are in the room are going to say, gee, you know, I don't, I don't know. That doesn't sound so good. The only question then is, how do you, how do you produce that result? I mean, if you accept the premise that you stated today, which is, Let's talk about the fact that that's a bad state of affairs. However it was produced, whatever the analysis is, however the social science is, that's a bad state of affairs. Then the question is, what do you do to get from where you are now to a state of affairs that I think virtually everybody would think would be a, a better one, as bad as it would be? Only a million people in prison, okay? Only, you know, two and a half times the representation of African Americans, the population in prison. Nevertheless, a significant improvement over the current state of affairs. And, and then, the, it seems to me the question really does have, have to come to, not an issue about responsibility, it's not an issue about responsibility, it's not about decriminalizing drugs, it is about alternatives to incarceration, successful alternatives to incarceration. That's what we need. Absolutely. First premise, horrible state of affairs, however we got there, we got we're in some deep shit. However, we got here. Got to do something about it. Now let's talk about successful alternatives to incarceration. About, about alternatives to incarceration. And I said, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is all very sensible to me. Um, I expect you're right that a rock solid, compelling uh, philosophical argument doesn't necessarily move the political ball one inch. Could be a correct argument just might not persuade anybody. I accept that that could be true. I still think you ought to make the argument. I know you don't disagree with that. There was, uh, and I mentioned this in the uh, uh, discussion with some people afterwards. I don't know that it was in the Q&A, but there was um, a very good piece, I thought, by Stephen Tellis, whose name I did mention uh, in uh, the Q&A last night, the political scientist, um, and uh, Mark Kleiman, uh, who's at UCLA, he's a policy analyst and uh, crime and drug guy, about what do we do about the prisons, which was all about exactly this, what are the alternatives? And it was also about kind of the politics of how you got the alternatives going. And one point they made there was, um, we may or may not like welfare reform, but welfare reform was really driven by experimentation at the state level, not by federal policy. It was driven by like Governor Tommy Thompson doing whatever he was doing in Wisconsin or whatever. And there were lots of different kinds of things going on in the states. So when Diulio says, uh, stop federalizing crime policy, and when someone talks about laboratories of democracy, that's what the states are, and about the possibility for states to do various kinds of experimental things from which they might learn from one another and develop uh, uh, realistic and workable programmatic alternatives to mass incarceration that evidence can show in fact do, I don't know, reduce recidivism or don't lead to increased victimization or whatever, then you might have something going. Um, and Kleiman uh, himself, I'm just throwing off a couple of things. This is by no means comprehensive, and my response to Lucius applies here. I don't know at some deeper level. I don't really know. I'm not the person you ought to be asking this mm. to. But, you know, I can read like anybody else. And um, Kleiman talks about, uh, he says, look, if a guy uh, was going to be deterred from robbing somebody's a crack-addicted burglar, was going to be deterred by lengthening his sentence, he wouldn't be a crack-addicted burglar. 
In other words, if he were rational in the sense of calculating the present value of what he's going to lose and what he's going to gain, he would have never picked up the crack pipe. Okay? In other words, he's compulsive. In other words, he's, you know, whatever the psychology of it is, it's not like his life is running on a train schedule. Okay? So therefore, you need to deal with this guy, so this argument goes, climbing. And he says there's some experimental evidence. He's got a judge out in Hawaii who's doing some of this, what he calls coerced abstinence, which is, okay, we've got a drug offender. He's nonviolent. He hasn't shot anybody or whatever. Okay? We're going we're gonna to put him on probation, but now intensive. We're going to have to invest some money in our probation system. We need officers with smaller caseloads, and we need more of them. And, you know, we're going to call him in for a little bit of urine at random, on average, every 10 days. He never knows when he's going to get called. He's going to have to come in. He's going to have to produce the urine. And if it's clean, fine. And if it's not, we're going to lock him up for two days, three days. Then we're going to let him out. Okay? So his life's going to be disrupted. Whatever he was trying to do, now he's going to have to come. He's going to have to go to jail or whatever uh, for two days or for three days. Uh, the claim is that this kind of sort of close behavioral, it's not something I'm an expert. You know, this is like broken windows theory for people. <laughs> you, you, you see what I mean? You see what I mean? James Q. Wilson says, if you don't fix the broken window, the crime is going to go down. And so then Rudy Giuliani puts 100,000 cops on the street to fix every broken window, which is to say to stop every public urination, to get all the squeegee men off the street, to stop people from smoking marijuana or selling dime bags. And then suddenly crime is supposed to go down because we're going to catch a lot of guys with guns in the net and all of that. Of course, we're also going to catch a whole lot of guys without guns, and we're going to kill a few of them. But never mind. That's, a, that's all a digression. It's like broken windows theory for people. We got the guy. And one of the things that I find compelling about uh, Kleiman's argument, not so much this behavioral thing, I just don't know. That's, that turns on the evidence. He says there's evidence. Uh, but one of the things that I find compelling is a statistical observation where he says, basically, drug use is driven by a kind of Pareto's law, 80-20, you know. Uh, the top 20% of the people do 80% of the stuff, okay? Uh, so whereas middle-class median voter parents may be concerned about the kids smoking dope behind the 7-Eleven, that's not really what's driving the drug market. What's driving the drug market is a smaller number of addicts who are very heavy users and who account for the vast majority of the stuff that's used. And then Climate observes, but you know what? These people are in our custody, in and out of our custody all the time. They're coming through our institution because they're getting arrested for doing crimes. If we really want to tackle the drug problem, it's, it's not as a practical matter, because politically abolition is a non-starter. It's not going to happen, okay? Uh, libertarians, to the contrary notwithstanding, it's not going to happen. If we really want to tackle the drug problem, if we could make a dent in this population, which is 20% of the users who are consuming 80% of the dope, and two-thirds or three-quarters of them are passing through our institutions on a more or less regular basis, then we might be able to make a significant uh, reduction both in uh, curtailing the drug market uh, as well as in uh, uh, limiting the amount of incarceration that we have to do. Something like that. Deborah? So, I mean, I agree. Moral outrage. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, holding it up to view, I think, is, can be very powerful. But I wanted to ask about kind of um, picking up on the end of Larry's re uh, remarks from this last comment on the Tanners. Uh, about cause or symptom, because if you think of it as cause, then you might think, you know, hold it up, you know, get um, uh, find alternatives to imprisonment, fix it up. Now everything, you, 
you've got everything in place. But if you think, no, this is a symptom of something else, and your last comment suggested, you know, this is America, there's a history, we just find one way after another of, um, you know, oppressing African-Americans. And if you close off this option, now we've got a nice you know, way of dealing with people who are in prison, maybe fairer, but we'll find another way. And so I wanted to ask about it, especially when you think about hypersegregation in the United States, you think about ghettos. Is this, you know, the right place to be thinking about the problem? <laughs> well, on the one hand, I think we have to focus there, and I think it's ap apropos the fact that Glenn is there too, as are a number of other people, is that uh, you know, I, I, I went into this question sitting there as a faculty member in Afro-American Studies at Harvard, and I asked myself the question, what would Du Bois be talking about today? And it struck me there were two things for certain he would be talking about. One was the incarceration problem, the other is the HIV-AIDS epidemic, that you couldn't think seriously about the challenges facing black America without having landed on those two problems. Which is not to say that in and of themselves they constitute an analysis of what creates them or how we might go about solving them, but you could not fail to engage those issues if you were encouraged to do so. And I share the view that most of the public, as I said before, has accepted this, normalized it, is at some level dimly aware that a heck of a lot of black people are in jail, but at the same time not caring. They broke the law, that's where they belong, and there's nothing peculiar about it. Uh, whereas in point of fact, crime went down, and we've still massively marched ahead with all of this incarceration, right? That we, in, in point of fact, did a policy intervention that radically altered the rate at which people in general, but especially African Americans, got sucked into this thing. And that that thing does have, among other bad effects, on individuals, families, communities, deeply criminogenic effects. And I think it's a larger extrapolation creating a worse nightmare down the road, as Glenn alluded uh, in his remarks. So I think, yes, we have to go at this problem. We have to describe the parameters of it. Now, there is an implication in my comments that you're quite right about, which is that, um, you know, and I almost did bring in the quote to try to really put it on the table, to just quote Derek Bell. And uh, to say, are we talking about the permanence of racism here? When you say, let's ask tough questions about American character, as you know, one of the enduring debates and dialogues out there is whether or not this is fundamentally a hair-invoked democracy that never intended and never will accommodate African Americans or, or other groups of color, or whether there really is some fundamental promise of complete dissolution of problematic color divisions uh, in this society. And I don't, I don't pretend to have the answer to that, and there's a lot of evidence that says it's going to be a hard struggle, but and I, I want to be a pessimistic voice, because in response to Josh's comment, I was going to say, let's not underestimate the current punitive zeitgeist. Giving people evidence that something is useful, even useful for reducing crime, doesn't mean they'll support it. You'll be astonished at how ready people are to be punitive, for example, making it much harder for people in jail to go to school and get literacy or GEDs or college. People are ready to take that away. I have to fight the sin. My kids, I have to work hard. They have to take discipline. Why should we give it to prisoners? Well, because it's the one thing we know virtually eliminates criminal recidivism. <laughs> uh, but people will still say, punish the hell out of them, don't give them the resources for that. Right? And <laughs> that's, a, that's a political circumstance we have to wrestle with. 
And I, and I don't know the answer to it, but simply suggesting there's an ethical argument or even an evidence-based argument is not a solution to that political problem. I don't want to say it's totally intractable, but it's a tough nut. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> Let me just make an observation here, uh, which is it's a kind of rhetorical thing because there's a dilemma here, you know. I'm reading a book uh, now by a historian called uh, Ilan Pape about Israel. It's called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Okay? Now, my comments here are not about Israel, so please don't anybody get upset. Okay? All I'm saying is think about the rhetoric of that. You know, Jimmy Carter says, uh, uh, Palestine, peace, not apartheid, right? Now think about the language. Now I know there's a huge debate going on in uh, the blogosphere and in the journals and everything else about this kind of language and how you can frame it. And the dilemma that I'm trying to call Heronvolt democracy, you know, I think of Charles Mills, the racial contract, right? On the one hand, we're talking about how can we persuade people, and on the other hand, we're talking about let's call the thing what it is, okay? So now, if you actually want to change things, you might want to forbear calling it exactly what it is, notwithstanding what it actually is, in order to keep people's attention. On the other hand, if a decade, two decades, four decades go by, and the occupation is still ongoing, and the injustice is becoming world historic, maybe you ought to just call it what it is. A racist nation of and, and, and then, <laughs> let, you know, maybe clarity about what it is is the imperative, regardless right. of a political calculation. Yes. Maybe we're not that clever to figure out where politics are going to go, and that the first order priority is simple moral clarity about the problem, Absolute. period, end of statement. So that, that was that. And I want to say one other thing. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you, man. And I wanted to write yeah, the comments, I'm, too. I'm, like, I'm already moving away from it. I, I feel a thunderbolt coming. Okay. It was just an analogy, you guys. It was just an analogy. <laughs> point two is, point two is we're all standing in line taking off our shoes and putting our liquids into these plastic bags, and God knows when it's going to stop. And the politician who says, okay, you guys, you don't have to stand in line anymore and put your liquids in the plastic bags, the first plane that goes down, she's finished. Okay? So maybe we can't go back. Right? So there's this kind of problem, too. There's the kind of irreversibility that's built into the political process, it seems to me, such that reason is insufficient simply because the risk that people have to take in order to act on a reasonable argument in view of some of the counterfactuals that could occur are just too great. Maybe we should be thinking about trying to find ways to insulate them from those risks. So, so I think of this gubernatorial campaign in Massachusetts where the Republican opponent to Deval Patrick, somehow a story ends up in the newspaper about Deval Patrick's brother having been a sex offender who didn't register properly under sex offender laws, and that's in the newspaper. Or when Deval Patrick writes a letter on behalf of this uh, guy, uh, I forget his name now, who is a prisoner, and Deval Patrick as a lawyer basically shows some support for this guy's case, and then that becomes an issue in the campaign, okay? Because the signaling thing that's going on is, you see, he's soft on criminals, you see, he's soft on criminals, okay? Now, that's just reprehensible beyond any imagining, in my opinion. Where is the norm of civil discourse, or a guy running for governor against the Democrat in Virginia says, he says he'll enforce the death penalty even though he's personally against it, but here's the survivor of a, of a, of a murder uh, case, and she's on the camera saying, I don't believe that the Democrat would really enforce the death penalty. In other words, how come we don't have some kind of um, um, 
repudiation of a certain kind of politics, not as a partisan matter, but just as, now I know there are answers to that. I know the political scientists have answers to why it is that you just can't give speeches to people about cleaning up their acts. But maybe we could think about some kind of mechanisms that would encourage a more um, effective, uh, informal ostracism and social sanctioning of people who poison the well of public discourse in a particular way. And if we could do that, that might create space for more intelligent policy to actually get into the process. This, uh, I think, has been an exhilarating two hours. Um, and, uh, please join with me. Um, thank you, Mr. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.